If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you? How's your uh, back to school going? Um, even if you're not back to school I am sh- and don't have kids returning, I'm sure you feel the shift, the return to order. I have to admit, I've resisted the routine at many points in my life, but it's undeniable how much it actually serves me. And uh, so that I don't have to spend so much mental energy on constructing my day. Uh, I have the framework now of my, my children's school days, beginnings and endings, and a lot of balls in the air in between, but it just helps to have this sort of order to things. I did have a couple of weeks at the end of August, though, where my son started high school soccer practice, and I cut back my work uh, in the afternoon so that I could take my daughter to the pool, and it was it was pretty blissful, I have to say. Uh, those dog days, some warm weather, and, and uh, a few last dips in the pool. But maybe it's essential to have this breakup of routine once in a while so that we can tap back into this feeling of, of order again. Whatever the case, I'm feeling good. Though it's not hard to when it's 78 degrees and sunny. I'm heading out for a walk as soon as I finish this. I've got a great guest list coming up for the podcast for the fall next week. Dr. Michelle Renee from uh, Northwestern Health Sciences University. College of Health Sciences, sorry. Um, and... Um, don't forget if you if you if you listen to Highway to Health, um, you can you can check it out on any of your devices. In case you're at work, you can pop it up on Spotify, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Wherever you listen, though, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you know when a new podcast posts. Also, if you'd be willing to take thirty seconds to consider uh, just giving it a quick rating, and uh, if you got anything nice to say, I'd really appreciate it. it. Really helps to get the word out there and build our community of inspired thought leaders. If you know someone like this, uh, a thought leader of sorts, and think I should have a conversation with them on the podcast, shoot me an email and connect us. My uh, email is jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. You can also show your leadership by contributing financially to projects like this. Uh, Many of my guests come through friends of this growing community. You can show your support for the podcast by going to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash highwaytohealth. Every dollar helps, and you can show your support for as little as $1 a month. My guest for today is Dr. Rosie Ward. Really excited for this conversation. The reason I do this podcast is because there are so many amazing people out there doing good work, people who care about the state of the world and are not just in it to make a buck. The Fusion 2.0 conference Rosie and Salvio Partners have created is drawing attention from some of the biggest names in the industry of wellness in the workplace, and many of them will be keynote speakers at this event in Minneapolis, November 7th through the 9th. We have a conversation about the ways of rethinking strategies for improving well-being in our workplaces, and she shares the secret sauce of their upcoming conferences. Please welcome Dr. Rosie Ward. 
how did you end up like down down this track? What was the what was the beginning of your career? Like you know before you got into doing what I'm doing with with the Salvio Salvio Partners. Yeah. So the big well the beginning of my career was really unbeknownst to me. It was back starting to teach group fitness classes huh. in college, and I just did it for fun because I didn't like the workout classes at college and and did it on the side. And I was a psychology major at, at uh, university. And then where'd you go to? School? Uh, I started out at university of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. Okay. And I was a psych major and it was a junior and I studied abroad and I was living in England, which was really interesting. And where, I, where did you live in Winchester? England. Okay. I, was, I, was I was in Oxford for a semester. Okay. So I traveled around. Fair yep. Not. Yep. Same thing. So I was in King Alfred's college and it oh, was, yeah. met a great group of friends and it was very funny because one day they said, um, they found out that I taught group fitness classes back then we called it aerobics and right. they did this whole promotion on campus and said oh we have a real live american aerobics instructor and <laughs> so i taught a guest class there it was back when you had tapes it was very funny but anyway and um and when i came back i actually went to my first fitness convention in chicago because i needed continuing education credits mm-hmm. and i remember being like a sponge and eating everything up and it was back when the ESP and fitness pros were a big deal and yeah. Jen Miller, the creator of step. And I was starstruck and I thought this is amazing. And I was driving back from Chicago to Minnesota and I was somewhere in the middle of Wisconsin, which is where all people have great epiphanies. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I thought I'm going to do that someday. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to do that. And so I came home and I decided to take a semester off of school, which really pleased my parents. So I had to move back home with them (laughs) while I figured out what I was going to do. And during that time period, I decided that I needed to change my major. And I didn't even know what kinesiology was, but I fell Uh upon it. So I transferred schools to the University of Minnesota because they had one of the top ranking programs in the country. And it was convenient because I lived here. And uh, so my parents said, wait, you're going from psychology major and you're basically a senior and you're going to do what? And I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. I knew that I didn't want to work in a health club full time. I thought having overachieving parents and family members, I would be, I felt like I would be losing brain cells for me or it just was not what I wanted to do, but I just knew I needed to do something. So unbeknownst to me, I found out that there was a early degree track, nothing like it was today on corporate fitness. And I thought, well, that seems a little interesting. What might that be? And you had to kind of make it up with taking some leadership classes and some marketing classes because it really was fairly still a new career path. Yeah. And I did that. And had my internship and all along I was working in the insurance industry part-time just to pay bills and all of those things. And so I started out my first job where I got to put all my eggs in one basket was actually working for a vendor and I was contracted at target and I was up at Mm -hmm. one of their distribution centers and I became a first time manager. They put me in as a program director. Like who gives somebody a director title when you're 23 or 24 years old? I didn't know what I was doing. They saw something, something, but I inherited this team and one of the gals had applied for the job and didn't get it. So she was really not happy. So right off the bat, I'm a new manager and I have a difficult employee. I had an unpaid intern who had a lot of psychological problems and a lot of issues. So, I mean, I just baptism by fire thrown into it. And I remember going, there's no support. No one was developing me. They gave me this job. They gave me this title, but no one taught me how to actually lead, how to manage. So I was just trying to figure it out. So I started trying to get my hands on 
any leadership, any business book I could to try to find tips and teach myself. Like you can learn from books, but you can learn, you know, some. So I went and got good to grade and first break all the rules and everything you could possibly think of early, early works. And then I decided I needed to get my master's degree. So I got my master's degree in public health while I was still working at Target and figuring out my leadership journey. So did you, you finish up your degree in kinesiology? Yep, I finished up did? my kinesiology degree and then I knew that I needed to get a master's and I didn't really know in what. And I was asking people in my field, what do you get a degree in? And nothing really seemed to fit. I thought, why would I get another master's degree in exercise science? Yeah. Like it just didn't seem like it. But there weren't degrees back then in worksite wellness health promotion. Right, now right. there's some that exist. Yeah. They didn't exist back then. So someone said, well, you should do public health. I thought, uh, uh, okay. So I got a master's in public health from the University of Minnesota, and it was fine, but it should have been a sign that I probably got the wrong degree because my favorite class was management and leadership in healthcare. My friends hated it, and I just thought this was the best class <laughs> yeah. ever. And part of it was probably because I was a new manager, and I was like, oh, this is so helpful, and I wish I would have known this three years ago and all of those things. But it really totally interests me, and I learned about new authors and researchers that I didn't know about before. So I got done and got my master's degree. And I remember towards the end having this insight while I was working at Target that uh, what we're doing in the world of worksite wellness didn't work. I would talk to my friends who were practitioners in the field and we all said, whatever these gurus are publishing from a research standpoint how are they getting that because in practice i don't know any companies that are actually following that and and there's something that there's a disconnect what was what was actually going on like well yeah they would publish oh you're supposed to do these health risk assessments and and have all these incentives and it was early on in starting to tie things to health insurance premiums and you're supposed to get all these behavior changes and roi and reduction in workers comp and i just wasn't seeing that and i wasn't seeing that companies were wanting to buy into it even target we were doing other things to integrate with risk management and workers comp but it wasn't following the best practices model of health risk assessment insurance premiums and and i we couldn't even make the business case of why would they spend the money to do that yeah so i just i didn't understand it i mean i i understood it philosophically but what we were seeing in practice and it wasn't just me it was many many people i would go to conferences and were and you felt like you were learning what you were supposed to do but yet no one was able to actually implement it so it felt really frustrating the other thing that was really interesting to me was that I would watch the people who would come into the wellness center and the programs we would try to do and while I enjoyed what I did it was fun I felt like it's the same old people doing the same old stuff we're not reaching people that we want to reach and I feel like I'm losing brain cells like I can't do this anymore and I just remember having this really deflated thought of You've got to be kidding me. I've just acquired $80,000 of student loan debt, and this crap doesn't work. And this was in 1999. I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? My parents are going to kill me. (laughs) Like, what what have I done? Why did I make this decision? And so as I was looking for what my next job was, I thought, well, I did just get a degree in public health. Maybe I should go work in public health. You got a decent job title now. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And maybe the thought is you try to affect things on a larger level, community or policy or something, because worksite clearly wasn't going to happen. So I took a job in public health, and I really feel that a couple things, that the universe works in really strange ways. and. I feel like you have to personally experience something sometimes before you really get it. 
And I had been reading these books about the importance of leadership and job satisfaction and employee engagement, but I got transplanted to this job that was, I would say, what the stereotypical government worker was, where no one really cared. There was apathy because everyone got paid the same and there was no incentive for people to do better than they needed to. There was a lot of taking advantage of the system. There was a lot of rewarding tenure rather than performance, all of those things. And I was in a job with a colleague where it, we were paid the exact same and, and had to kind of split this role and had two different functions. And I found myself where I came in working my butt off and she would take two hour lunches and come in late and spend most of her day working on personal stuff. And there was all this turnover and the leadership was poor. And being in that environment after only four months, yeah. I started getting sick all the time, even though I was still teaching group fitness and having some personal training clients. I started to gain weight. I think I gained probably 10 or 15 pounds over my not that long of a tenure there. I found myself watching the clock. I found myself going, if I give you five more minutes, I'm getting it back in comp time, which was so not me. I mean, I went from a type AAA overachiever to completely, you're not getting one more speck out of me. Um, My husband and I would start fighting because you'd go home and you just complain about your day and you're crabby and it takes your energy out of you. And the, and the other kicking kicker for me was my friends started saying, Rosie, what's wrong with you? You don't seem like you. Hmm. And I thought all of a sudden I just had this epiphany and I thought, no wonder why what we're doing in worksite wellness doesn't work. If you can take a person who's knowledgeable and cares about this stuff and cares about her own well-being, mm-hmm. and you transplant them into this environment that is essentially toxic, it can suck the wellness out of you. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is, and this is a totally different field, but I hear the same kinds of things from, say, people who work in hospital settings or, you know, similar things where, you know, it's, it's, it, maybe it's a trickle down effect from all sorts of things. You know, you have patients coming in who are like, they don't really care about their health that much. So you have like maybe half a population coming in to see you every day who they want the symptom to go away, but they're not that invested. And then, you know, you, you have these sort of overworked employees who get to the same point because they're not seeing any success with the people. And so you get this environment that's just like, I mean. It just feeds off each other. It's a vicious cycle. How can you heal in a place like this? You can't, exactly. And I remember, so I remember having this thought that, okay, so maybe I didn't just waste all this money on these two degrees, but I think our field is broken, and I think it's off course. And I thought, okay, are you really going to do this, Rosie? Because you're still now mid upper twenties. And are you really going to take on the good old white boys right. that basically the establishment of the wellness industry? Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I am. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, then I need to come at it from a different perspective yeah. and I need to broaden my horizons. And so I started looking at, I need another degree. Uh, that was a fun conversation to have back at the time with my husband. And when we were, you know, think we're fine oh, now, yeah. but right. And so as I was looking for degree programs, I eventually fell upon a PhD program in organization and management. So I thought I needed to get completely out of this myopic box of health behavior change theories, health behavior. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but if you're trying to impact change in a workplace, I felt like you were speaking two different languages, that the health and wellness people are not speaking the same language as business leaders, as the operation strategy. And how can you be on the same page if you're, if you're just talking over each other. So I thought I'm going to challenge myself and I'm going to try to, you know, look at this from a different lens. And I'm really glad I did. Although it was funny. I felt like the odd, you know, 
fitness wellness person in this degree with VPs of HR from Boeing and all this stuff. And I thought, okay, who doesn't belong here? The square peg in the wrong hole. But I thought I need to learn this. And so maybe that's exactly why you need to be there. Because I've been in the same, I've been the same square peg. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think it's kind of the story of my life. I, I, I tend to have this be the salmon swimming upstream. Yeah whatever. And that seems to be my place in this world, if you will. And so, um, when I was doing that degree program, I really tried to tailor all of my coursework as much as I could on looking at a couple things. So Juan got really, really interested in workplace and organizational mm-hmm. culture and yeah. what it meant and how you measured it and what do we know about it. Very interested in leadership and fellowship. And then started really looking at this whole idea of coaching. So the world of, uh, coaching was still fairly new. So I started my PhD program in 2004. Okay. And right around when I did, I had gone to a wellness conference and met this wonderful, wonderful woman who I still am friends with to this day, Jackie Bridal Dietrich. And she introduced me to the world of professional coaching. I didn't know there was such a thing. Yeah. I had done some work with landmark education back in the nineties, but I didn't know there was actually a career of coaching. And was it related to, to wellness or was it? Um, she, it was like life and business coaching. Okay. So this is okay. even a precursor yeah. to what we know as wellness coaching right. today. And she had gone to some organization. I learned about the international coach federation. I thought, Oh my gosh, there's this whole career path out there on like, what is this? I need to look into this. And so as I looked at different coaching programs, I fell upon a particular type of coaching called intrinsic coaching. And it just really seemed to speak to what, what I was looking for. It's really, how do you help people shift their thinking patterns and change from the inside out? And it's less about tools in your toolbox to ask people questions, to get them to commit to a behavior change, but really to help them have more self-awareness, clarity, and make choices from a place of better thinking. And so as I was doing that, I had taken a new position. I became the health and wellness director at Northwestern Health Sciences University in Bloomington, Mm. Minnesota. I've done some speaking out there too. Yep. And so know (laughs) them well. And, uh, and I was really fortunate because it was a new position and my boss at the time really let me play. Uh I got to create, I got to experiment went through their research IRB board and got to create pilot programs and just try stuff because I just knew that what we did didn't work. And I said, I feel like we're in this, we got to figure out something new. And they were really, really supportive, which I'm eternally grateful for. And so I was doing that while I was working on my PhD and I ended up because of one of the pilot programs I did there, I ended up forming my dissertation work and they, I used the intrinsic coaching training program because people go through it, not just to become a coach, but can go through it because they want to be a better leader. They want to be a better parent. And so I used that as the intervention and I did a pre post mixed method design and really wanted to look at the uh, correlation and relationship between individual well-being, life balance, resiliency, stress factors, mm-hmm. and organizational factors. Yeah. So job satisfaction, organizational commitment. So this is even pre-employee engagement literature. This yeah. was, they, they call it job satisfaction and organizational commitment. Okay. So it's, it, you know, and, um, and so I just wanted to kind of see what's related. And if you can actually help people be more self-aware and strengthen their intrinsic thinking and in, in that part of themselves, yeah does that relate to these other things? And I found that that it did. I started to kind of see this incredible interrelatedness between individual well-being and organizational well-being, which I intuitively knew from my experience, but you need the data to start to back it up. And because I don't do anything easy, I'm a glutton for punishment. As I was working on my doctoral research, of course, no one had done this before. So I was pulling from 11 different bodies of research trying to connect the dots and go, hey, do you know that you're saying the same thing that this person is and, yeah. and all of that, but none of you talk to each other? 
And so, so when I got to that point and I had finished my comprehensive exams and papers and was in the middle of my doctoral research, I got contacted by a local insurance broker and they wanted to talk to me about coming and doing consulting for them. And in the meantime, I had had, uh, two presidents of Northwestern Health Sciences University say to me, Rosie, the problem is we can't keep up with you. Like I would come forward with ideas. <laughs> they would say, we want to diversify because, you know, we need to have other streams of income. And I would bring forward ideas of, hey, I've had requests to consult to export our program. And they just, it fell on deaf ears. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is important is that I'm one of those that if you tell me I can't do it, I'm going to prove you wrong to the best of my ability. Yeah. And i Back when I was there, I butted heads a lot with the CFO. We had very different philosophies of what my role should be. Luckily, I didn't report to him. But he thought my role was all about getting employees to use their clinics more. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, no, that's not really what employee wellness and well-being is. And one day, we got in such a disagreement that he, I don't know if he had a temper tantrum or what, but he decided to freeze my budget and said, you don't get to do anything until we get alignment on what your vision is. And I had been there three years or four years at that point. So I got really mad. I went to my office. I had my nice little Zen fountain, and I shut my door, and I was like, well, screw you, and I'm going to prove you wrong. And I just started going, if I was going to go out on my own, what would I do? Yeah, well, it's a good good place to start sometimes because because that's the true place. Yeah, right? You get get mad or someone. And so I remember – We'd, we'd created a website there, so I knew enough about looking up website domains and looking up trademarks and whatnot. And anyway, I fell upon Salveo, and Salveo is the Latin word that means to be well mm-hmm. or in good health. Yeah. And uh, there was one company out there that was a pet food company, so I thought, okay, well, if I can't be Salveo alone, what would it be? And I thought, when you coach somebody, it's a partnership. When you consult, it's a partnership. And mm-hmm. I thought, I want about partners. And so that's this was back in now in 2006. Okay. So... I bought the web domain, you know, did all the stuff. And I started writing copy and just started purging on paper. And I thought, well, what are the three things that I mainly do? I coach, consult, and speak. And I really wasn't sure what the business model was other than just, and I remember I met my husband for dinner and I said, look what I did today, honey. And he's like, what? I go, I don't really know what's going to happen with this, but (laughs) he can, he can piss off. He froze my budget. (laughs) But he he was probably happy that you weren't going to school again. (laughs) Well, like no more degrees, right? So, uh, so then I was like, well, what am I going to do with this? And then I thought, okay, I just got another degree. We weren't at, like, we didn't have all the savings where I could just take off. Oh, and yeah. So I thought, okay, how am I going to do this? And I thought, well, maybe I can just kind of test the waters and do this on the side, like take PTO and just see what happens. Yeah. So that's the world that I sat in for actually quite a long time, yeah. a very, very, very low risk way of trying to see what the market is. Because again, this is still fairly yeah. new. So in the world of insurance brokers, that's in the last 10 years where I would say a lot of the growth has come for worksite wellness practitioners where those were jobs that didn't even exist. But I had a really good friend who I'm still friends with today named Allie who worked for a competing broker in town. And I was asking her about this company and she said, I think you're going to be able to go and really make it what you want. And I think this could be a great opportunity mm-hmm. for you. And I thought, okay. So I ended up going there. Uh, we had to draw lines in the sand because they wanted to own Salveo. And I said, no, like, I don't know what I'm doing with it. But Who wanted this, this new company? This new company. And so basically signed, you know, your kind of prenuptial agreement that I was only going to have so many coaching clients at any given time. And I wasn't going to be focusing efforts on building Salveo while I was there, which is fair. 
So I basically just kept renewing the web domain and let it sit dormant for seven yeah, years. Yeah. So it was like an idea, but it just sat there yeah. while I was working for them. And again, I would say for a long time, I was very fortunate where they didn't know what they didn't know. And so they let me experiment. Yeah. They let me play. I was fortunate to have forward thinking clients where I started to talk about culture and leadership and say, you know, you can't do this in a bubble. And, and I just started to kind of push the envelope and we would see clients who would go on the journey with me, who were finding success, were saying, yes, this makes sense. And so they started to kind of build their platform around this idea of culture. And at this, in the meantime, I started doing more speaking at conferences, breakout sessions, and starting to webinars and just trying to kind of be more of a thought leader of trying to challenge this industry and say, hey, you all, like, these are things I've learned. And there's this, like, what you're learning over here really isn't necessarily reality. And here's this whole new world. Like, are you reading management literature? Do you understand there's a whole other group of change theories and stuff that no one tells you about because you've been in this bubble? And and I became really, really passionate. It's exciting about, because the, n- nobody else is, is yeah. doing this yet. And I've, no. I've been in that situation a few times where being a thought leader or be, just paving a path that n- no one has really yeah. seen yet is exciting because, and you start seeing how, how many people sort of grab onto that yeah. and say, that, that feels right to me now, you yeah. know? <laughs> well, it's exciting and it's exhausting. Right? Yeah, would, oh, totally. Yeah. So I would, I would speak and I would start telling my story about when I was in public health and beating my head against the wall. And I would have people come up to me saying, oh my gosh, I feel that same way. And I feel like, like people who had been in the field for more than five, eight years yeah. ten, were, were in the same spot I was where they were like, I'm in this field, but I don't, I'm disheartened. Yeah. I don't believe in it. I feel like it's not working. And I started to feel this immense sense, maybe self-imposed pressure that if we don't start to do something fundamentally different in the, in, under the umbrella of employee wellness or workplace wellness, yeah. this field is going to cease to exist in about five years. And all of these people who have spent money on degrees and are passionate about yeah. it are going to be looking for new jobs. Like I really felt that strongly. So I felt like I was on this mission to save the industry from the the people who had made a lot of money off it but got it off course and were very much sticking their heels in the sand to say you know we're going to do it our way well i get if you've made a lot of money and not just the industry but like all the people who are going to be affected by the the lack of support that, that was supposed to be there exactly so what was really interesting is then while I was at this insurance broker, I uh, had my son, and he had a lot of health problems and, and a lot of different issues, and he's fine now. But I remember while I was on maternity leave, my boss came to me and said, well, they've decided to join, become part of this new national firm because they were a regional broker. Mm-hmm. And it was totally fine because I would, one, it was great. It was a great culture. They were bought into this vision of you know, culture and integration of employee well-being and organizational health and those types of things. The other thing was that it made it really, really easy when I was doing work on the side because I would just take paid time off. And if I was going to another state, it wasn't a conflict of interest right. because they didn't work in those markets. Yeah. Well, now they were going to be part of this national firm. So now the lines are getting blurred a little bit. And being part of the national firm, insurance salespeople know how to sell products. They don't necessarily know how to sell consulting services. Yeah. And there was a physician at one of the southern state branches that became part of this company who had a lot of sizzle and 
there was not a lot of clout behind or not a lot of substance behind it, but a lot of sizzle and it made it easy for the salespeople to sell. And so they started going about 10 to 15 years backwards with wellness, old school oh, disease yeah. management, all yeah. of this stuff. And I was literally having practice leaders and people from throughout the country calling me up saying, Rosie, help. Like, we feel like this guy is being shoved down our throat. We feel like our roles are being, they're, they're strategizing at the benefits level and they're not including the subject oh, yeah. matter experts. Yeah. And I mean, they were crying out for help. So I would go to my CEO and I would say, Hey, like I, you know, cause he kept saying, Oh, you could be the regional practice leader. And I was like, how can I help these people? And he said, well, you could go out and go to the, do site visits or something as long as they pay for your travel. But here's what he said to me that still rings true to me. To, well, that, that I've proved wrong today, but he said, Rosie, here's the problem with your model. You can't be everywhere. It's not scalable. And I looked at him and I said, you're right. The model is scalable when you develop others to do this. And there yeah. are people crying out to develop it and we could do this. And yeah. I would love to help develop them. Yeah. Like, you know, build a community of people who can actually do things better. Yeah. I thought this is a way to change the industry. Well, they, they didn't because they, they then they wanted to have access you know well then we're not going to have access to you and it was just this like pulling my arms and I just thought this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen so you have that going on you have that I was working a gajillion hours a week yeah I mean a ridiculous amount and I was burned out and I just thought this is this is bad then the work then something happened and I think it's because I challenged the establishment um, that all of a sudden my boss turned on me and I yeah. went from being his golden child to shit on the bottom of his shoe. Yeah. And I remember going in and being sick to my stomach and any day I would see his light on, I go, Oh crap. <laughs> and it, I mean, I kid you not, I got on, put on a performance improvement plan for the first time in my life because I wasn't participating in daily stretching. I was like, I'm on billable hours and you want me like they were grasping. So I contacted yeah. attorneys and I was trying to find out like, what are my options? Because like, this is so ridiculous. Like they, yeah. they read the performance improvement plan and went, yeah. uh, what? And I'm like, I'm clearly being pushed out the door, yeah. but I want to know, like, can I try to argue for like, if they get to me first, yeah. it was a bad game of chicken. Yeah. So I was like, I have to get out of here. And I had a two year non-compete. So you're like, what am I going to do for two years? Because you know, anything, I mean, they, I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been able to hold up in court, but it was, you know, you couldn't talk to any. It's still scary. You got to, yeah. you got to figure out your own livelihood right. in that situation. Exactly. And so while this was going on, I had uh, been talking to my now business partner, John Robeson, and we had been talking about writing a book and he had written a book back in 2004. And I had become familiar with his work when I first went to Northwestern Health Sciences University. And as we were talking, we were talking about the work I was doing, the work he was doing and blending it and really right, just giving people more. Because as I would speak, people would say, I want more. So I would start doing two-day pre-conferences, which I hate because it's like fire hose of information. What is, what is pre-conference? Pre-conference mean? is like you do these full-day workshops that are leading up to a regular to conference a regular, okay. to go in intensive on a topic. Gotcha. And while I, I felt like I was helping people and giving them information and looking back, it's not how adults learn and, you know, principles yeah. of adult learning. You don't retain and whatever. But I met a lot of great people and I felt like I was trying to help my industry and help my colleagues. And we would do those and people would say, I still want more, I want more. And I thought, you know, what if we write a book and basically give away the secret sauce? I mean, there's not a secret sauce, but just yeah. give away like what I've learned in yeah. here. And, you know, the, for my colleagues who were saying, Rosie, help us, I thought, well, this is a way to do it because I knew I was... And by, and by getting it out there, you're starting to kind of like build the community yeah. of, of thought. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what it was. And so we, we, uh, we started writing the book 
And in the meantime, I'm desperately applying for pretty much any job just to get me the hell away from this company. And, you know, I found myself going home and I'd be crying. And then my son, who was now three, was starting to act out at preschool. And I was like, oh, I mean, you just start to see how much this, I mean, I just became even that much more impassioned about this is why workplaces need to change because this is what it does to people. And, and, and not that many people get out the way that you yeah. did, you know, yeah. because it's just well, where, where else are they going to go? They don't have that sort of risk. Exactly. You know, entrepreneurial spirit. Exactly. Well, and even so, like you need, you need something. And what's interesting is Jeffrey Pfeffer put out a book earlier this year called Dying for a Paycheck. And it talks about how workplaces, toxic workplaces are literally killing people yeah. and that they're now the fifth leading cause of death and the stress and everything. And I'm like, yeah, I've lived through it. And yeah. intuitively, if you've ever lived through it, you get it. So, uh, so here we are and I'm trying to find a job and trying to say any day, am I going to be fired? And we just bought a house. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to lose the house. I mean, it was just, it was a very, very stressful yeah. time. And I ended up taking a job with a company called Fairview Physician Associates. They're a, a, a network of independent providers. And they, I, I, it was an opportunity to come in and overhaul a health coaching program they had, plus do some development with physicians and their well-being and to do some culture mm. work. So it was really, it, it was nice because it didn't conflict with anything I was doing with Salveo Partners. Yeah. And it was a really really good culture it was a nice place to land while i was working off my non-compete and figuring out what was next and i got to learn a lot and meet some great people and again i really think that the universe works in mysterious ways because about a month after my non-compete expired they said we're going to close your coaching program and i thought well isn't that convenient But they gave us an eight-month notice, which is unheard of because they wanted us to finish coaching all the people we had gotten in, and it was like a six-month program. So some of us were being laid off. Some were going to be redirected and whatnot. And so my my boss at the time said, this actually might be a really good blessing for you and a launching pad. And she was like, I will be completely supportive whatever time you need. And so I basically, as clients whittle down – I got to collect full-time director salary and put pedal to the metal to try to reestablish and grow Salveo Partners. And, and, and at the time, when John and I decided to write the book and we had published it, we had a third business partner, and he was running the business side of things out of Michigan. And he decided that he needed to pull out and put his efforts into his other business, which I totally understand. Yeah. So. Mind you, my full-time job is wrapping up. I'm now taking over as all the business side. So moving Salveo Partners here, getting legal, you know, getting accountants, just trying to do all of that oh, like yeah. legitimate business yeah. stuff that you don't yeah. have as a sole proprietor. Right. Trying to figure all that out because my, my business partner, John's it's a not... a steep learning curve. Oh, a steep learning curve, right? And he, and he, that's not his forte, so I said I would take it over. Yeah. So all of this is going on at the same time. And I just started networking like crazy. And we had decided to, the book came out and people were like, oh my gosh, this is my workplace Bible. They'd send us pictures with it highlighted and tabbed and they would say, we still want more. So then we created a, a 11 week training program online that's live to try to help people really apply the principles. And Like a webinar type thing? Yeah, or? we do it via Zoom. So it's okay. 90 yeah, minutes yeah. each week and it's called our Thriving Workplace Culture Certificate or TWCC. And we we thought well i don't know we'll limit we'll limit it to 25 people and maybe 10 people will show up yeah well we sold out our first one and we thought okay maybe we're on to something yeah 
so we got done with it. And then people said that was the best training or best professional development I've ever done in like 18 years in this industry. And we were opening it up to HR as well, because we started to really look at that while, while I grew up in workplace wellness, I start to, I'm doing less and less and less actually in wellness. And it's really more in leadership and culture. Mm -hmm. And because that's, that's really how you, I mean, that's the foundation of it all, right? right? I feel like programs and resources are self-actualization at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid. Right, exactly. The base is decent leadership, good culture, yeah. those types of things. And so that's where my world has started to really it's grow. It, it reminds me, I, we just we got a dog, a, a new, adopted a dog in May. And I, I've only had dogs through my parents. So the, it's the first time I've had to go through the training process of, of a dog. And there's, there's something about, I, and, and I, now I'm kind of, I'm, I'm using this metaphor for all sorts of things, but if if they don't have a leader in in in, the, in guiding them it's very stressful for them because they th- that pack mentality i think exists everywhere i don't mm-hmm. think it's just in actually that we we just think about it as a dog thing but that 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 idea that someone's got the got the lead on something in any situation is super important because and 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 there are there are different levels of, of this like in our family you know our we have a, a an older child who is taller than me now, sadly, <laughs> um, and then a, a seven and a half year old who is, is is at the bottom of the chain, and you know probably should be right now. So now the dog only has to protect the, the smallest one. But before that, he felt the need to sort of protect all of us, and it was very stressful. And we started seeing aggressive behavior mm. and all these things. And it and it I feel like it translates. And be, also, my, I think we talked about this before, but my my wife is actually starting a new job today. She has been working for one of the big four accounting firms. And the leadership issues there and the stresses that it, that it causes yeah. and it's and all the problems are happening at that management level and probably higher up, obviously. But w- what that does, that trickle down effect of, of not feeling like anyone's in charge is a serious issue. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, it's not even just that anyone is in charge. Is, is there someone in charge that you respect or whatnot? I mean, like what, one of the things I learned about leadership that was an eye opener to me in my doctoral research is leadership isn't anything if you don't have followership right right and so that you can you can have the role of a quote-unquote leader because you have the title or the power but or the authority but that doesn't make you a leader you're not stepping into that yeah you know and and really owning that part and and then the, the the human part of that actually being able to like listen to the challenges and like in their organization the problem that they have is that there's no upward feedback yeah and so that's the problem. I mean, yep. that's, you know, yep. getting back to. Yeah. Oh, gosh, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. And so so that's really been where where a lot of our work has focused is trying to do that, because I, I, I see that if you don't have that, it it impacts everything. And in fact, there's been tons of research that has come out in the last several years talking specifically about leadership and well-being. So we know that people who have more of that command and control transactional leadership style, you see a higher rate of workplace injuries, heart attacks, stress issues, sleep disturbances, all of those things, which again, if any of us have ever worked from a boss, boss from hell, you, you experience it. And, but we all, there's also great research to talk about the correlation between if you have more of that servant leadership or transformational leadership, it actually boosts and enhance well-being. So I think from, for people who work in the niche of employee wellness or, or well-being, and they're not seeing 
that they have a critical role as part of leadership development efforts. There's hugely missed opportunities. And for people who are more traditional about leadership development, I feel like they are missing opportunities if they're not partnering with or looking at the well-being aspects because it's it's huge in that regard. And so when we look at kind of the work that that we are doing and how it's morphed, you know, I feel really blessed that everything has kind of been organic. I mean, the book was because of speaking engagements yeah, and the yeah. training was because of the book. And then even we got done with the training and people would say, but I, that was great, but I feel like I want more. So we were, we're really big on building community and, and, and supporting each other to make change rather than, I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of people, you know, have, could have opportunities to do it. So we created what we call our annual licensing program, which is when people graduate our TWCC program, instead of just taking their money to renew a license, we really wanted it to be building community, ongoing development. So we do monthly group consulting calls where sometimes we present information, sometimes we have guest presenters, sometimes they bring a problem and challenge. So they're really, mm-hmm. and, and this group yeah. now has been growing for the last three years and they're just doing the most amazing things. Like I just get inspired. Like I think um, my business partner, John said, if I never step on stage again, just like being almost behind the scenes and you almost feel parental in a way, in a good way, like yeah. so proud of these people yeah. and all the work they're doing, like that just gives me immense joy like give other people opportunities to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in their work that like just is is beyond beyond amazing and so so we have that uh, we have that whole piece going on and what's um and then from the consulting standpoint going back to the leadership thing you know i've had these really profound insights i would say over the last two years with the work that i've been doing and that is this that you always hear about you have to have buy-in from the top and how do you make the business case? And then it's all this old hierarchical push stuff down to the organization. Yeah. And I agree to a point, but what <clears throat> what I have seen going back to how do you define leadership is that Daniel Harlan wrote a book called The New Alpha and she has a great definition of leadership. And I've heard other ones similar, but hers is that leadership is about becoming the best version of yourself so you can maximize your positive impact on the world. Mm-hmm. And I love that definition because that really speaks to the notion that leadership at the end of the day is a behavior. It's not a title. Yeah, yeah. And that you can develop anybody to show up as a leader. And when we think about all the data that's come out from Deloitte and others in the last couple of years, that our traditional way of defining and developing leaders is too slow too outdated for our fast-paced changing world. When you look at what millennials are demanding, when you look at the the new demand for companies to be socially responsible and have have a meaning and purpose and what what the millennials and Gen Z are looking for in work, it's a different ball game than it was a few years ago. And so what's really interesting to me is that if you can start to look at well, we need to start to equip everybody to show up as a leader, not just people who have official titles or positions. Mm-hmm. And and how do you create psychologically safe environments that allow people to thrive, to bring forward those ideas, to take initiative, all of those things, which is what people want. I mean, that's engagement at its core. And so as we started to study organizations that are doing this well and that have been written about in books and published, you start to see this common theme, and it really is this leadership at the core front lines, if you will. And there's another great definition of leadership that goes beyond just like leadership's about being the best version of yourself. But David Foster Wallace, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's basically that effective leaders help us overcome our own selfishness, weakness, and fears and get us to do harder, more important work than we would on their own. Right. And that's really kind of almost what you do in coaching. Yeah. And so I feel like if someone also actually has people leadership responsibilities, their job is to understand how do you do that? And you can't do that by 
command and control, telling people what to do, waving incentives in their face, those types of things. And so the world that we sit in is really twofold. One, it's trying to elevate, I'm going to say, the world of organizational well-being and really looking at culture and leadership from a different lens. But then from a well-being standpoint, there's so much brokenness that is going on in employee wellness that is just based on faulty data, outdated science, unproven claims. Um, a lot, what I started to learn being in the wellness industry actually made me sick to my stomach that a lot of the research that has been published that I used as mm-hmm. a practitioner yeah, yeah. is coming from vendors whose livelihood depends on the numbers working right, yeah, out. Absolutely. And when you start to realize how I'm just going to call it incestuous. The industry is and how they're all yeah. on each other's boards and yeah. they're all make and it's, it's, it makes you sick to your stomach and it's right. still the good old boys, even yeah. though the field is predominantly women. I just started to just have this, ugh. I almost felt like I was in the tobacco industry in a I, different way. I, I was, I got involved in a, a health tech project with a doctor a few years back and uh, spent a couple of years working with him and was, was on his board and, and basically went to a lot of these meetings and started seeing the, what 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 he was you know his what his idea was was to improve his quality of of life as a doctor that he really loved being a doctor but he hated the administrative part of things and he hated the 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 broken communication and the broken follow up issues and all these things so what he was really working on was like patient relationships and communication which there's no money to be made at right so so what health tech was really you know turning into was a way to like suck money out of Medicare and Medicaid. And the deeper we got into it, it felt the same way. I was just like, oh, it just, yeah. it just sucks the life energy out of you. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, and I just thought, here's a field that I've given my career to. Yeah. And when I started to actually, you know, you look at the underbelly of it. And I think having been, quote unquote, brought into the inner circle for a few years and seeing what really goes on and realizing how disgusting it really was and it's like i'm going to go around and badmouth people or tell people but you know there's people that are just out doing their work and are doing what i did you go to conferences you read these publications you trust that these people are the leaders of your field yeah, right and you don't know what you don't know right and when i knew what i knew i went oh i i, I can't i can't even like i just can't right. and so um what's been really interesting is we uh we partnered with Ryan Piccarello, who's the new, well, it's been there a couple of years now, but new president of Wellness Councils of America, or WellCOA. And Ryan is really a forward-thinking, great guy. The former president was kind of in the in the crony, mucky-muck world. Mm-hmm. And Ryan's his own person. And yeah. Ryan realizes that wellness needs to change. And so we partnered with Ryan and a gentleman by the name of Al Lewis, who is a thorn in the wellness industry side. They hate him. He's a whistleblower, and he's kind of snarky. Uh, but he calls out he calls them out on their lies basically and so it was a really unlikely partnership but the four of us partnered up to say you know what we need to bring some ethics and sanity back to wellness and so we created a nonprofit called ethical wellness and created the employee health and wellness code of conduct to basically try to say i mean it's bare bones minimum but basically that first and foremost these programs should do no harm and a lot of them actually are doing harm and the thought was Elevate awareness to employers who are purchasing these services from vendors and brokers, and dema- and they can request that that language gets put into contracts so that if these vendors actually do a lot of this stuff that is harmful, that they'd be in breach of contract. It was also trying to separate the good from the bad providers and vendors and those types of things. Mm-hmm. And, and then we then it turned into a whole working group on LinkedIn, and now I'm on this board 
called the Wellness Compliance Institute. So there's a lot of efforts trying to bring some sanity to wellness, which I feel really good about. What's so interesting is there's still a lot of people who I'll call the establishment that are fighting it, saying, well, we don't need that, or it's admitting we've done harm. And it's like, well, yes, we have. So, well, with, with, Without naming names, what, <laughs> what are some of the, the ethical things, that, the well, challenges that you see going on? So the number one thing is that they are – we, we call it the wellness or else approach. It's the four P's, pry, pry, poke, prod, and punish, where the they're advocating for going in, and there's a lot of vendors that do this, doing outcomes-based wellness because of the Affordable Care Act. So they go in and say, we're going to take blood of all your people and you do these mm, biometrics, yeah, yeah. which is one little measure of health, by the way. They're not following preventive care guidelines, and many times they're over-screening people. Right? They, people yeah. don't need to be screened. Right. Then there's a lot of false positives. There's tons and tons of stories about false positives and what that does to people. Sometimes they don't have people who are actually trained to be giving the results to people. It's another story. They're doing tests that are rated D by the U.S. Preventive yeah. Task Force that aren't needed. But, ooh, we're doing this battery of tests. I've, I've had, like, life insurance tests yeah. where I'm like, the people come into my house, I'm like, you're doing my tests? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it's even worse than that. And then what they do is then they attach – you get health insurance premium discounts or penalties yeah. for it. And here's here's the problem. The data shows that that's not effective. Uh, you're paying for compliance. You're, um, you're, there, there's all these stories about, like, because they'll run these challenges. So if you're not going to meet your body mass index requirement, which don't even get me started because that's a faulty yeah, metric yeah. anyway, then you have to do these programs. Well, the alternative programs have sent people with disordered eating and eating disorders into a tailspin. I mean, you, there's just all kinds of stuff. So they're 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 doing things that are not founded in good science, that aren't following preventive care guidelines, costing a lot of money. Usually what they're doing is they're cost shifting to the the people they assume aren't going to participate, so the 10 or 15% right. and they're shouldering all the costs. So you're basically penalizing the people who can least afford to do it. Right. Um they also, when they do their study designs and try to claim ROI, it's faulty study designs. They're usually comparing participants to non-participants, which is an invalid study design. I mean, the list just kind of goes on and on and on, and they're not counting in the incentives and the cost of the program, so there's false claims of ROI. There's just a ton of stuff that is going on. And so Can you Indy, explain ROI for anyone uh, listening? Yeah, so it's the return on investment. Okay. So, like, I think that in a lot of areas of business, you probably can calculate a return on investment. So let's say you're going to do a marketing marketing initiative and you have a way of tracking how many people click on right, this link. Right, exactly. But when it comes to human behavior and there's all these confounding factors, mm-hmm. you can't say that this in a bubble caused this. And that's right. really what ROI okay. is. It's claiming causality and you can't. Um, so that and and if you look at the data out there, when you started to actually look at people like the Rand Corporation and third party researchers who are not part of the industry who start to evaluate these programs, you start to see they actually don't have a return on investment. Many times they're negative. So it's just this clashing of we've basically touted this as it's effective. The other thing is that the, um, the whole design of attaching health insurance premiums to health behaviors in these outcomes-based programs was because of the wellness provisions that were in the Affordable Care Act that were largely based on Safeway's claims of their program design and saving, Mm -hmm. which turned out to be completely made up. Right. So you've just got this spiral of stuff on made-up data, bad data, faulty research design, not following preventive care guidelines, unintended consequences of the intervention, doing interventions that actually are harmful to people. So the code of conduct is bare bones of like, we're not going to harm people, that we're going to disclose how we're evaluating our programs that we're not going to be using invalid metrics like 
participant versus non-participant. I mean, it's pretty low yeah. bar, right? And so what's interesting is how much that riled up the industry. And I think it riled up the industry because Welcoa brought Al Lewis into the mix because he's like this thorn in everyone's side. And I mm-hmm. get it. I get it that he's snarky and whatnot. But if you take away the delivery of his message, he's just pointing out, like he says, you you can argue with the numbers and wellness, but they, they, they invalidate themselves. Like I'm not, I'm, if you know math, like these things are not valid. So did you, did you deal with any of this in in your book in terms of like, Yeah, can, our book, can, can you share any secret sauce? Uh, yeah, a couple well, things. Yeah, so well, our book. So one of the things we're really big on, if we're going to talk about what doesn't work, you got to talk about that, what to right. Do that's instead. what I'm. Yeah. Yep. And so the whole first half of our our first book, because we're working on our second right now, but the whole first half actually goes into the science, and we talk about paradigms, and we talk about uh, looking at the mechanistic worldview, and looking at neuroscience, and really understanding. We we firmly believe if you're going to challenge paradigms you've got to be rooted in sound science. Because when you're salmon swimming upstream, you don't have a leg to stand on if, you, if you're if you just saying things for, for kicks. You've got yeah. to be like, these. this is what the research tells us. And so then what we get into is we really say, okay, so from a wellness standpoint, we use this analogy that building a thriving culture at work is similar to building a structurally sound and an aesthetically pleasing house. Mm-hmm. If you skip steps if you use outdated materials. That house is not going to withstand the test of time and certainly not going to withstand hurricanes and those types of things. And so we call the blueprint, and following that metaphor, the seven points of transformation. And transformation point number one is survey the land. You've got to know if your land is buildable, kind of good, bad, and ugly. Mm-hmm. So we, in the context of organizations, we talk about how often do you look at data and you look at it in silos. You look at your let's say your workers' compensation data, and then you deploy a safety risk management ergonomic strategy. You look at your health insurance claims data, and then you deploy some kind of wellness strategy. You might look at your turnover data or employee engagement survey data, and then you deploy some kind of retention and morale boosting strategy. But a lot of times they're disjointed, they're they're undermining each other, they're not accounting for the fact that these are all interrelated. So we really talk about how to look at your data in a holistic way, bring partners to the table so that you're looking for the root cause of things, and you're not just, you know, putting a band on. Or looking looking at patterns and saying, mm-hmm. does does this make sense? Yep, 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 yep. And what can we learn from it and yeah. those types of things? Yeah. So then you go to transformation point number two, which is creating the blueprint. And Margaret Wheatley has a great saying that we often quote that people only support what they've helped to create. And so it's great. And I love it. Right. And it's so true. And so we talk about, and if you look at companies that do this well, including everybody in the process, if you want to really be clear about your why and your purpose. So we talk a lot about in the work we do, we talk about Simon Sinek's work and Patrick Lencioni and being clear of your purpose and vision and that you include employees in that process to clarify your why and purpose and look at where do you want to go and all of those types of things and how are we going to get there. It shouldn't be this elite group that goes off with an overpaid consultant for a weekend and comes back and right. pushes the plan down. So we talk about everything we talk about is in terms of old paradigm versus new paradigm. Yeah. So old paradigm is that way. New paradigm is include people in the process. And, and continue to kind of keep exploring that mm-hmm. why because it's not you know what what was right this week. You know, and this is one of the things that that happens on the podcast a lot is you get into saying like, what is, 
what is, what is how how do you define health? Yeah, and you can you can come up with a totally different answer for that week to week, yeah. month to month. And yep. so you have to kind of keep digging into it because there's there's always something you know, layers behind what you thought was all the truth. Yeah, well, it's funny because we talk about health in terms of. Um, being able to thrive despite the hand you've been dealt like that somebody can have a chronic disease and still actually be completely thriving it's not this linear continuum where there's some false state of optimum and then death and disease and disability and all those things yeah and so we um so then you move to transformation point number three and that's pouring the solid foundation and we view that as developing quality leaders and that's where you start to see cracks and so when you look at how we define leaders and you look at uh, how you, we approach it from the inside out. So it all starts with self-awareness. Then you develop better thinking because our behaviors are a manifestation of how we think. Mm-hmm. Then you move to what I would call more traditional leadership development where you help people develop and foster quality relationships. And I think a lot of people want to jump in at that point of developing leaders and they haven't really thought about how do you help them be a better version of themselves and show up better. And so I th- just think that's a huge missed opportunity for for people in this space and then help them grow the organization. So we spend a lot of time talking about and giving stories about how we develop leaders and following this framework and those types of things. And then you get to transformation point number four, which now you can frame the house. And we look at framing the house in terms of creating a supportive climate. So your climate has to support your culture. A lot of times what happens is that people use culture as a buzzword and they don't even know what it means. Right. And what they're really talking about is climate. So Dr. Edgar Schein is the guru in this space and he defines culture as the unconscious underlying hidden taken for granted beliefs attitudes perceptions values that guide your behavior so we use the analogy of a river where the current beneath the surface is the culture and everything you see on the surface is a manifestation of that that's the climate Mm -hmm. so transformation point number four is where now your climate can help support the culture you're trying to create but a lot of times what happens is people try to throw in an intervention and they wonder why it doesn't work because they haven't fundamentally done anything to right. shift that thinking. Yes. And that's why transformation point number three or looking at develop people development strategy, not even just leadership development, is so critical because that's how you start to impact that underlying, the self-awareness, the perception, the attitudes, right? Yeah. So assuming you have that, now you frame the house. And we talk about how do you um, – we talk about creating like a hub-and-spoke model where you have a core group uh, that might help a culture planning team or culture mm-hmm. action yeah. team. And then the spokes are a network of ambassadors, and they yeah. really become your two-way conduit of communication in the spirit of people support what they've helped to create. They help create that structure where, regardless of how big your organization is, every employee feels like they have a voice and they're influencing this on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about kind of how to create that structure. Then you get to transformation point number five, and now you can wire the house. And we spent a lot of time talking about that change comes from the inside out and really looking at the difference between a technical change or technical challenge and an adaptive challenge. So a technical one is straightforward, adaptive. You have to shift your thinking. You have to get deeply uncomfortable. You have to do a lot of different work. We talk a lot about Robert Keegan's and Lisa Leahy, their immunity to change work and really how you help people overcome your psychological immunity to change and, and really moving away from this faulty paradigm that you can just incent people or you know, carrot or stick them to change. And again, the wellness industry has been based on this largely, but we do it all over the place. And so we, we give a lot of data about how that doesn't work, why it doesn't work, how to actually support people in navigating adaptive change. Then you move to transformation point number six, which is now you can decorate the house. This is where the programs and resources come in. So if you think from, if you just take wellness for a second, 
what most traditional wellness professionals and programs are doing is at step six. And they wonder why it doesn't work. Well, mm-hmm. because steps one through five either aren't there, are broken, you know, those types of things. And so, um, so we also, so in that we talk about, well, what do you do instead of health risk assessments and biometric screenings? We don't say that it's people shouldn't know their numbers, but we really believe that we should stop medicalizing the workplace and you should put that relationship back in the hands of people and their healthcare yes. provider. Yeah. And most healthcare providers agree that yeah. I talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing is saying, okay, so instead of that, why don't you have a really robust healthcare consumerism campaign? Why don't you teach them how to know when to get care, how to develop, what questions to ask, yeah. um, choosing wisely, some of these other resources that are out there that help people. Being really... able to identify when you actually are yeah. having a problem. Yeah, and how to partner with the right type of care, the right healthcare provider, those types of yeah. things, is going to be far more impactful than trying to get people to eat more broccoli and giving them a Fitbit. And, and maybe develop those relationships, yep. too, that, that you know are, are sort of working for your organization. Exactly, exactly. And, and so, we talk about, we, so we talk about a lot of different programs of, of, to do instead. We talk about instead of doing crash dieting contests and Biggest Loser contests that have a whole bunch of yeah. issues, we talk about the research on uh, health at every size and intuitive eating and really how do you actually help people make peace with their bodies and peace with their food and mm-hmm. we have a program called health for everybody and so we really talk about what are some of the key components of traditional wellness and what can you do instead of those and then transformation point number seven is maintaining the house so we really look at this in the spirit of continuous quality improvement and how do you really still use metrics but use metrics that are meaningful for your organization and metrics that actually are relevant versus some random return on investment metric and and then you kind of go back to are we on course or do we need to course correct and it's really this fluid approach versus some kind of weird static approach and so that's the blueprint that we um we have been using and what's interesting since we did that about a year ago we created this uh, this visual called the thriving organization pyramid because we found that while that blueprint made sense for people they were they couldn't quite grasp they couldn't quite grasp it in one regard or the other. And one of the gals who was one of our graduates, uh, her name is Rebecca Johnson. She had this great visual and we were talking to a prospective client. And she said, you know, think of a pyramid because they were trying to understand why their wellness programs weren't working yeah, and they were yeah. coming to us for consulting advice. And, and she said, if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's like the wellness programs are at the top and everything that you're trying that is getting in the way is culture and leadership. And that's at the base. And, I saw how it resonated for them and they got it. And we yeah. thought, oh my gosh, we have to, we have to make this into a visual. Yeah. So our thriving organization pyramid is kind of trying to help people see where do you start? If the base of your pyramid is great, awesome. Then move further up and where can you, and if your base is faulty, like forget putting in a, you know, standing workstations and a walking challenge and right, exactly. you got bigger issues. And, right and, now. and and you could, I would imagine that, you know, let's say each of the, each of those, points of the pyramid are sort of a tier you probably need to spend that much time you know whatever that that width is i, I bet it equates to that you have to spend more time at the bottom actually oh, on development at, and then less as you go up oh absolutely because if you if you, yeah the stronger the base is it's almost like the stuff kind of naturally starts to fall into place by the time you get to the top and the top yeah. is self-actualization so yeah right. you want to have programs and resources but who cares if you have a boss who treats you like crap and you don't have meaningful work and you're burnt out and yeah, all of the above. But we, we, we've become such a culture of fast trackers. It's like, 
I know I can get there faster than this. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, well, there, we want There's got to be an elevator straight up the middle of this pyramid. <laughs> right? Yeah, I can just bypass. Well, yeah. And I mean, God love being human. The human condition is, is, is so funny. Yeah. And so we just, uh, so we, we've been using that. And what, again, what we've been hearing from people is that's such a useful tool for them to have the conversation with people to say like either where do we need to start or why isn't it working and which has just been great i mean that's i I feel like you know we're kind of we're kind of utopia and that we're trying to change the world but our why and our purpose at salveo partners is to rehumanize the workplace so that people can bring their best selves to work and home each day and so everything we do is in the spirit of can we give people free tools and resources? Can we train people? Can we build community? Because you don't rehumanize workplaces with one person. I mean, you need a, you need a community yeah. of people who are equipped to be able to go and say, I can challenge the status quo. I can bring new thinking. I can bring up-to-date data and I'm not going to be swayed by people who are comfortable with the status quo and, or, you know, want a quick fix. And, um, and so, and if, and if you're, if you're familiar with the blue zones project, Mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 one of the, you know, underlying things that I think they kind of get into with every culture that they go to is that, you know, and these are for anyone who hasn't heard, heard about this. It's a, it's a study of the, these points in the, in the world where they have the highest number of centenarians or, you know, people over a certain age. Yep. And it's almost all about, community and support from the community and yeah. if you don't have that your your health outcome goes down basically mm-hmm. yeah it, it's connect and it's purpose right they have yeah. purpose and, and they, they have, have connectedness yes yeah and, and amongst other things but yeah. yeah it's it's fascinating and i think that we we have lost that human connectedness at work we've lost that in the spirit of you know what people are looking for and as we're growing businesses and it's just what's what's really interesting to me is I remember if, uh, when we first put our book out in 20, it was the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And my business partner, John said to me, man, we should have written this book a long time ago. And I said, the world wasn't ready for it. Yeah. But what's been, and why I said that's our first book is we're in the middle of writing our second book. And it is so interesting. We said just in the last two to three years, it's like there's been a tipping point and there's been so much more research that has come out whether it's jeffrey pfeffer's book or deloitte talking about that it's kind of like enough like people have had it with these Mm -hmm. toxic work work sites saying that it's not about having more programs it's about having effective leadership and creating environments that don't don't hurt people in the first place don't harm them that's what jeffrey pfeffer's research came to the conclusion we've learned about amazing companies like bob chapman and barry waymiller and the growing movement with conscious capitalism and these organizations that really believe that business can be profitable but be a force for good in the world and not hurt people and actually care for their people and that it's counterintuitive because they big time take care of their people and the environment and and everything that goes with it but yet they're more profitable than their counterparts and mm-hmm. and there's just there's this growing angst I'm going to say with the future majority workforce you know with the millennials and even your seat with Gen Zs that they do they want to be a part of something they they want to be they don't want to just collect a paycheck. They want to be, you're seeing a lot of entrepreneurial ventures or they'll live at home longer because they don't want to just go and, and take the paycheck and say, yeah. forget it. A sense um, of purpose too. Yep. And what you're, you're hearing is that there's in the world of HR, a lot of people are struggling with recruiting and retaining yeah. the millennials in particular. And what they're finding is that if they can recruit them, they're losing them within 12 months because they don't have the patience for, if, if I am promised that this is this great workplace, 
and I get there and I realize reality is not what I promised, yeah. I don't have the patience for it to turn around. I'm going to yeah. go find it somewhere else. And so there's, ju- like I said, I just feel like there's been this tipping point where people have had it and they're, and I think in a good way. And so I feel like there's more conversation and more support and more things emerging where people are talking about bringing humanity back to work and, and connection and things that were, eh, they were fluffy, but they weren't serious business discussions. I'm going to say even three or four years ago, there was a small minority. Yeah. And I feel like every day it's just, it's growing and it's growing yeah. and it's, it's growing. It's, it's, it's the, the lip service has been paid for a while. It's the same as uh, I'm, I'm in an integrative health field, which is also like it's, it's been a, it's been a huge term being thrown around for the last five years. But the reality, and I've and I've gotten myself into a lot of situations where I think, oh, this is going to be a great relationship. I have this integrative. It's just it's not happening. It's happening in silos, and you know it's 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 a start. But there actually needs to be real collaboration and sort of some some unification to this process. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, and, you know, so speaking of collaboration, because I know one of the things we wanted to talk about is this whole Fusion 2.0 yeah, yeah, conference. Yeah. So with Celeo Partners, we call our approach to rehumanizing the workplace the Fusion, and it's really the inextricable interconnectedness of organizational well-being factors and employee well-being factors. And Fusion 2.0 came about because... As we were speaking at conferences, mainly wellness, but HR, leadership, you name it, I started to just get really frustrated. And what I mean by that is you would see the same old people presenting on the same stuff Mm -hmm. in wellness. It was, oh, let's have another breakout session on wearable devices at work. And it's like, (laughs) oh, my gosh, please. And people would come up to me and and say, are you kidding me? Again, these are people who've been in the field for a while that say, I'm here to get my CEUs. I basically look at it as a vacation from work um, and an excuse to go see friends I haven't seen for a long time and socialize and skip half the sessions because they're terrible. Uh, So that's really fantastic use of money and and time. And I admit I did the same thing. Mm -hmm. I would go to... uh, HR conferences, and I would see the same thing happening in that group. I had colleagues who were in safety and risk management, and they would basically talk about the same thing. When you needed to renew your professional certificates and get continuing ed, you basically went to your one or two token, uh, and it was where your most friends were going to be probably, and that was about it. And and you would hear them come back, yeah, I got a couple good nuggets, but you just keep doing the same old thing. And there are organizations who just know they're going to make a yeah. lot of money off of uh, exactly because people need CEUs. Yeah, and and obviously you need CEUs, but my again, you, you see the theme that I get frustrated, and when there's something not there, I'm like, okay, fine, let's yeah. let's create it. And so this had been several years of talking to people, and they would and they would say, gosh, we should just do our own conference. Ugh, but you know, it's a lot of work and. I think the tipping point for me was it was my last year of speaking at this one national conference and it was so bad. Like the keynotes, it was, it was just bad. And I just thought I can't do this anymore. And so I said, we've been talking about this for years. No one, no one's doing it. Why don't we just do it? So we we weren't really sure what to call it. And again, I started looking for web domains and this was in 2016 is when the, the summer of 2016 is when we first named it. Mm-hmm. And we came up with the name Fusion 2.0 Conference in the spirit of that the fusion is that interconnectedness, but we also realized that safety and risk management really need to be brought in the fold. And what I started realizing is that you've got these three broad disciplines, human resources, which you know includes leadership development and org effectiveness and training and development. You've got safety and risk management, 
And that can be business risk, traditional safety, all of that entails. And then you have employee wellness and well-being. And all three of these areas are all trying to capture the attention of the same group of employees. They all, through their own knowledge and resources and approaches, are trying to positively impact change and hopefully the employee experience yeah, at work. Yeah. But they don't collaborate very often. They tend to work in silos and they unintentionally, I hope, end up undermining each other many, many times. And they end up not getting to the root cause and they're just not as effective. They protect their yeah. turf or their budget, all this stuff. And I thought, why don't we just, why aren't these people coming together? Why don't we bring them together and help them see, first of all, you need to collaborate and equip these people to actually start working together and start bringing humanity back to the workplace. So that's where it was born. And then we thought, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to bring together a multidisciplinary team yeah. because we need to have all these perspectives and not just for speakers, but really understand those worlds. So over time, you, you guys have like 50 speakers coming to yeah, this thing or, yeah. and like a, like over a dozen keynote people, yeah. right? That's oh, yeah. like pretty big names. Yeah. We, uh, so what I'm really excited about is it's kind of like, Oh, you have this idea and you don't know if it's going to work or not. Right. Right. And we, um, the very first person, so I had met in 2016, I had met Bob Chapman, the CEO of Barry Waymiller and co-author yeah. of Everybody Matters with Raj Sisodia, the co-founder of Conscious Capitalism. And I read that book and I thought, oh my gosh, this company's amazing. And I had met Bob and he was very funny. Uh, we had a phone conversation and I remember he said to me, Rosie, you're you're like drinking through a fire hose. You're better than coffee on a Friday morning. And I was like, oh my God. So I, he came to Minnesota and I met him in person. Then I went to Barry Waymiller and I just said, Bob, we're doing this conference. And you understand that you have to be the opening keynote. Like nobody else could be the opening mm -hmm. keynote. And he actually gave us the tagline for the con or the initial tagline for the conference. And so he agreed to do it. And um, he's like, oh gosh, yeah, absolutely. And then, so we had him and then we're like, okay, well now what are, now yeah. we got to figure this out. And as we started to talk to people about it, and we were trying to get clear on our purpose and our why and all of those things, everybody was so excited and saying, oh my gosh, this is needed. And we started having people crawl out of the woodwork who are normally well-paid keynotes that yeah. are doing unpaid breakout sessions and learning labs and those types of things. Um, Raj Sisodia reached out to me on LinkedIn. I thought I was being punked. I thought, why, why do you want to talk to me? And he's like, can I be involved in the conference? And I said, are you kidding me? Like we need a closing keynote. Yeah. Uh, I had gotten to know Bob Keegan from Harvard immunity to change and deliberately developmental organizations. And, um, and I was talking to Bob and I said, Bob, people need to know about your work. I think it's such a gift to the world and it makes such a huge difference. And so he's, you know, he's speaking. So I just feel really blessed that all of these people, it's like a family and some of them I've never met and, but our planning committee has heard of or knows of and, and everyone we talked to has just said, this sounds amazing, but so it's great to bring all these people together and we have safety people and whatnot. And we're trying to help people not stay in their, their swim lanes or their tracks. We're trying yeah. to say like, this is about you know, interacting with people. So that's all great and dandy, but every conference has good speakers, hopefully. And so our thing was, if we're going to bring people together and we're going to have it be multidisciplinary, we need to address the other huge conference frustration is that it's not actionable and you don't go home and do right. anything different. Yeah. So we have hired some partners who have been phenomenal and we are having at the end of each day, when they were done with it, the, there's an opening keynote and a closing keynote and 
the content in between is there's regular breakout sessions because we don't want things to be totally unfamiliar to people. Yeah. We have longer 75-minute sessions that are called learning labs that are really designed to be practical, hands-on. People are actually doing something and walking away with a new tool, resource, activity, mm-hmm. like truly actionable. We have with, in- with the experience. With the experience, yep. yeah. Experiential learning, that's yeah. what people learn. And then we have innovator series, which are 30-minute case studies of organizations presenting we want the human. We want good, bad, and ugly. Where'd yeah. you mess up? What didn't work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And on your journey, so people can learn from them. Um, and then we have you know a, an opening keynote and closing keynote each day. And after the closing keynote, we have some people who are going to be doing what we're calling facilitated learning sessions, where basically they're going to help people process, okay, you just took in all this information today. Mm-hmm. Now let's help you process it. So we're using this format of what, what did I learn? So what? How is this relevant to me and my organization? And now what? What am I going to do with it? And we're creating a conference learning journal that guides people's experience throughout the program that they're going to keep. They're going to have it as reference. And at the back of it is a fold-out implementation plan that people are going to be filling out in these facilitated learning sessions at the end of each day. Yeah, that's great. And so they literally will walk away with an implementation plan. And the other thing that we're building in is, again, we're all about building community. We don't just want to take people's money and give them CEUs, is that almost within a day or two, hopefully post-conference, we're going to have a conference learning summary that's going to go out to everybody that kind of helps synthesize, like these are all the key things that were came up that people are taking away. And then we're doing a post-conference email reinforcement education campaign, if you will. So there's going to be a 30, 60, 90, and 120-day post-conference reinforcement that's going to go out to people, again, who attend. So mm-hmm. it's all in the spirit of making it actionable, keeping this at the forefront of their mind, helping them build a community so that they actually can go back and lead meaningful change, foster meaningful change when they go home. And then the other thing is my my third frustration point of conferences, so it's the content, it's the actionability, and the, the third point is that sometimes you meet some great people, sometimes you remember them, sometimes you don't, or you linked in with them and then you don't remember who they mm, were. Yeah. And Barry Waymiller has this really wonderful approach where they say, if we're going to take people away from their homes for even a day, mm-hmm. we want it to feel like it was meaningful and heartfelt and they made a good connection. Otherwise, what's what's the point? Yeah. And so we're taking a cue from them and at every meal and at various groupings throughout the conference are going to be very intentional, thoughtful, purposeful networking cards. So instead of just saying, hey, who you are, where are you from, there are going to be questions for people to answer to really spark more uh, higher-level connecting conversations, purposeful networking cards, as well as to help them synthesize what they're learning yeah. throughout the day. And so um, so those are kind of the key things that we're doing to try to address all the frustrations that we have experienced at a variety of conferences, and we're just so excited about Now it's just we're just getting the word out more about it, but everybody we talk to and everyone that's – come forward to be involved. I, I, I couldn't ask for a better like lineup or partners or anybody to be involved for the, especially the very first one. And that's the amazing exciting. thing. It's a, this, this is just the beginning of yeah. this. And, and, yeah. I, and if, the fact that nobody has stepped forward and sort of taken this on in this way before is like pretty, pretty exciting. I think it's exciting and it's, it's freaky. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> because we have all the risk, um, you know, Salveo partners, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously helping to plan it and we're uh, 
huge sponsor. We're, we're putting a lot of our own company's money into yeah, this. Yeah. So we have all the risk on our shoulders. Yeah. But so in that regards, it's a little freaky. Uh, but you, sometimes you just got to go, we believe in this. And and everybody, there's just so much energy around this that we're just we're just hoping that it um, it 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 continues to grow and we're looking at this to hopefully be an annual event and yeah it's pretty exciting well being being the family member of somebody who's been through this like horrible workplace environment i can tell you that it's not just about the workers like mm-hmm. every year for us that there 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 are these like almost guaranteed peaks and valleys of like busy periods and then recovery from them and then the next thing and then the drama of the challenges of, of the poor communication skills and all these, all these things, let alone all the, all the things that you guys are sort of addressing, which are like the, the, all the foundational leadership things that aren't being addressed that are part of that. And like, I I do think all these, all these wellness pieces are just like, they're just band-aids on top of all these problems at the moment. Oh, they totally are. And you know, I love that you, when we talk about bring your best self to work and best self home, you bring up a really important point about the people who are at home because yeah. I can also tell you, and my husband can probably attest when I when I was going through my stuff with yeah. a previous employer, and I watched what it even did to my three year old son and how yeah, he was showing totally. up at daycare, and and when my husband has been in toxic work environments and I just and he comes home and all he can do is complain and talk about it and you sit there and you're trying to be the supportive spouse and in your head you're just going oh my god please shut up I can't listen to this one more time or just leave and you know you can't just leave and so um it was really interesting because again Jeffrey Pfeffer's book dying for a paycheck he addresses a really important point at the end he says you know that why don't well then why don't people just leave well it's not, it's, you know, right. You have to find another job. But the other thing he says that I think we forget about is that when people are in that environment, sometimes their self-confidence goes down, they're Mm -hmm. exhausted, they're tired, and it takes a lot of energy to put your best foot forward to look for and apply an interview for a job. And if you are feeling crummy, if you are not in that space, the chance that you can actually bring your best self and be able to actually make the right decision and all of those types of things. So it's just, so you kind of get comfortable standing in the sewage if you will and you just get stuck and, and it so, becomes normalized I yeah, mean, if, especially totally. if it's your first job you know a lot of people you know go right out of college into one of these companies because they were super overachievers in the first place yeah and they got pulled in and i think the first years aren't always as bad it's just it just starts to build and the company culture of a lot of you know the the happy hours and the drinking the, the expectation of going to these non-paid events and granted they're throwing alcohol at you so it seems but i think what what i started seeing was that those were just opportunities for people to like add more fuel to the fire. They're just talking behind the scenes about all the problems while they're getting drunk. Yeah. Oh and, yeah. <laughs> and you know, and and that's just making the whole situation worse when, you know, they, it, and a lot of it was leadership issues. I mean, yeah. that's, I feel like that's, you're, you're totally nailing it with this. So yeah. I'm super excited. Yeah. Well, and you know what, I, I think that if we can start to shift and have people think of themselves as a leader, like here, yeah. and, and this yeah. is, this is, this is what I've heard a lot, whether we, people are going through our training program and we've heard this from people who are wellness professionals and they literally will say, yeah, but Rosie, I don't have a PhD in organization management. Or they'll say, well, I'm quote unquote, just a wellness yeah. person. And I get so irritated because I'm like, first of all, stop, you're a human being. You're not just to anything. And 
you know what, you have a lot of knowledge and experience and why shouldn't you be involved? And by the way, you should be a critical part of leadership development. I will hear- You have sway over all the people you're around every single day. Right. And then I will hear people sometimes in human resources say, well, they don't listen to me. I'm just quote unquote an HR person and I'm not part of organizational strategy unless I'm the senior VP of HR. And even then I'm token at the table. And again, I say to them, stop it. Like you are in a huge position. And again, so I go back to if leadership is a behavior and it's a mindset, it's not a title or a role. If every single person starts to take that in and say, what am I doing to make a positive impact? And what am I doing to be more self-aware and be the best version of myself and shows up that way, then collectively you build a mass to start to transform workplace cultures. And Brene Brown, last fall, I had the opportunity to meet her and she's just phenomenal. And she said something that has stuck with me. And she says, you change a culture by creating a critical mass of courageous leaders, Mm -hmm. meaning people who are are courageous enough, they choose courage over comfort, Mm -hmm. that they are courageous enough to say, you know what, I can speak up just because it's not my role, that they are going to get outside of their comfort zones and start building relationships with someone they don't normally work with, that they're going to get curious instead of standing in judgment, all of those types of things. That's how we start to change culture. And so our hope in the work that we do with our consulting and our training programs, as well as with fusion 2.0 is to start to really do just that of if people can start to show up as a courageous leader in their lives, whether they're at work or at home, right? We start to kind of address this humanity crisis that I think is, is growing at the same time it's growing there's a whole lot of people that are trying to bring humanity back and so i do i feel like we're at this tipping point and if we can play a small part in trying to bring people together and equip them to stand stand in their own greatness and to stand and show up as a leader in their lives like that's pretty cool to me that's pretty amazing to me so thank you so much for taking the time to do this This yeah like amazing information and resource I'm going to put all your info up on the site so that people know where to go for this conference. The website for the conference is fusion2conference.com. Okay, yeah. cool. Thank you for having yeah. me. Yeah, thanks, Rosie. Yeah. Dr. Rosie Ward, folks. So glad I got to talk to her. So many great ideas that she's pushing forward here. I've been thinking a lot about what she had to say about leadership and foundational principles. I see so clearly the link between strong leadership and wellness. And also, I think it's crucial that we find our own leadership role. About six months into doing this podcast, I started to realize that by pushing myself out into the podcast community around health and sustainable practices, I myself had taken a leadership role. And I published my first podcast on SoundCloud, a free service that I'm still posting episodes on today. By the time I had the nerve to get it out there to a bigger community, I had nearly 3,000 listens and uh, about 150 regular listeners. And now I have listeners from about 30 countries, and I've started getting feedback from listeners telling me that they are actually learning things from this podcast, which is you know, all I can really ask for. And like Rosie, there was this organic process that I realized afterwards that I had pulled together my writing skills my music and sound editing skills, and my business experience all in one place. And like she talked about, you know, you don't have to have a PhD. You, you just have to have your experience. You can be a, a leader in whatever way you can find. If you like what Rosie had to say and are curious to learn more, you might want to check out the Fusion 2.0 conference coming to Minneapolis, November 7th through the 9th. Go to fusion2conference.com. Check out their lineup of keynote and guest speakers. 
If you like the content produced here on Highway to Health, I'm pretty sure you're going to like what Rosie and Salvio Partners have put together here. As she explained, it's more than just inspiration. They want to see real change happen in the workplace and in our culture in general. And they've set it up with constructive breakout sessions so you'll have some practical, actionable takeaways to start making the changes you'd like to see and create meaning in your work and life. It's also a great way to find people and uh, help build a supportive community around yourself. Register soon, though, because because, uh, spots are going to fill up. And if your business wants to send uh, five or more people, there uh, there is discounted pricing for the event. Rosie also told me off mic that they are looking to bring this conference next year to other cities. So if uh, you like what you had to hear here, you can go to their contact page or their website and let them know you'd be interested in having them come to your place. Thanks again to Rosie for taking the time to share her insights on the subject. Let me know what you thought of this topic and conversation. You can email me at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be good to yourself. Be kind to each other and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.